the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. This week, as usual, I'm joined by co-hosts Lee Johnson and Rick Lee. And this week, we also have special guest Devin Shaw, an instructor from Douglas College, who's going to talk to us about our topic, which is punching Nazis. So before we get to that, let's get our drink orders and our rant and rave. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a amaretto sour today. I'm feeling like a little bit of sweetness. And I am actually raving about J.M. Kutzia's Waiting for the Barbarians. <laughs> need to give Jason Reed a little bit of credit for this because he recently tweeted about this and I had forgotten and I went back and grabbed it off my shelf. It's a very slim volume. Reread it again in just an afternoon and it is such a great novel. I just want to mention this one particular scene, which I really love, which is when Colonel Joel, who's the protagonist, is interrogating someone and he says... This is what happens. First lies, then pressure, then more lies, then more pressure, then the break, then more pressure, and then the truth. And the magistrate that is accompanying him says, pain is truth, all else is subject to doubt. Now, I'm guessing that in today's discussion about fascism that we might talk a little bit about those things. So (laughs) that's what I'm raving about today. And Rick, what do you have and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a gin gimlet, and I would like a gin that is pretty botanical, so I'll leave it up to you. And today I am raving about the Netflix series Kunk on Earth. So I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a kind of mockumentary about basically the history of the world. And the character in it, Philomena Kunk, is a very naive interviewer and she doesn't seem to have the knowledge she needs in order to carry this project out. And as happens often in comedy, that naivete actually exposes some really large truths. And it's just (laughs) hilarious. I think there are only four or five episodes. I binged them in a night. So Kunk on Earth, go and watch it, everybody. Jason, what about you and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a dark and stormy. I've been drinking a lot of our locally brewed main root ginger beer, and it goes really well with that. And I am going to rant about lying recipes. I have been doing a lot of cooking, and I'm making a lot of risotto. And for whatever reason, if you made risotto, you know there's this process at the end where you're like adding broth and you're stirring it in. And every recipe I've read, lies about how long that takes. Oh my and they God, make it so sound true. like it's going to take so like 10, true. 20 minutes. And you don't need to lie to me. Like I know that there's like patience. It's, it's going to be worth it. You don't have to sugarcoat this with lies. So true. I've been listening to full podcasts while I do that. That's how long it takes, but it's worth it. So don't lie. <laughs> also, did you know Lee wrote a country song called Lion Recipes? Lion <laughs> Recipes. So, Jason, why don't you introduce us to our guest? And he needs something to drink. Yeah, yeah. he does. Well, yeah, first, so Devin, what do you have and what are you ranting or raving about? Um, I'll have an IPA. And I thought I would rant about my other job, which is to be the negotiator for our union. But I actually realized I want to rave about the work of Mobogo Percy Moore for a moment. <laughs> 
So my book, Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, is the first book in a series called Living Existentialism. And we get, as series editors, the book sales reports for the books. And it turns out that Mabogo's book was a pandemic book. Mine was too, but his was about a year down the road. And it's definitely suffered in sales for that. So I want to give a shout out to his book, Sartre on Contingency, Anti-Black Racism and Embodiment. Mabogo was a student and involved in the black consciousness movement in South Africa and was the first black professor of philosophy in South Africa as well. So he's got a fairly extensive political background and has an important place in academic history in South Africa and has more recently since retiring, as far as I understand, has written a couple of books, including one on Stephen Biko and then an autobiography or memoir, and then Sartre on Contingency, which I'm actually going to be teaching this summer semester during my one course I teach a year, because the rest of my time is bought out to be a negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> and Devin, why don't you go ahead and plug who's the press and what's the title of the series? So the press is Roman and Littlefield, and the series is called Living Existentialism. And so my book was the first, and it was something that one of the co-editors and I had always wanted to put together a series that handled some of this. So through Lewis Gordon, we were introduced to Mabogo Moore's work. And then there's a book on jazz, whiteness, and racialized listening called The Sonic Gaze by Storm Heater. There's Black Nihilism and Anti-Black Racism by Devin Johnson. And then a new book by Natalie Atoke, Black Existential Freedom. All right, everybody, tell your Alexa to put those on your shopping list. <laughs> so, Jason, I know we're talking about punching Nazis today, but how are we going to approach this and what did you have in mind? Well, the word fascism has sort of emerged from the historical archive to become a contemporary issue. And there's been a lot of discussion about you know, how to define fascism, to what extent can current politics like Trump be considered fascist or DeSantis considered fascist. But no less important question, I think, than the question of definition is the question of how to respond to fascism. Yeah. And on that point, I think the opposition divides rather sharply between those who argue that fascism must be countered with the norms of civil society, debated, discussed, and defeated in the marketplace of ideas, as they say, and those who argue the violence of fascism must be met with counterviolence to defend communities under attack. And so joining us to talk about the latter is Devin Shaw, author of The Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, Punching Nazis, and Fighting White Supremacy. So, Devin, in your book, you suggest the struggle against fascism has to be understood as a three-way fight between anti-fascism, liberalism, and fascism. So what defines this three-way struggle, and why do attempts to insist on a dualistic division between fascism and anti-fascism ultimately serve fascism? How does this philosophical strategy of kind of a demarcation differ from what you refer to as a tendency of conflation? So – the three-way fight, there's a position and then there's a group related to this or a blog or a project. And so sometimes there's confusion about that. So you've articulated the three-way fight position, and that's the one I defend. There's also the three-way fight blog. That's been long running about 20 years at this point as a project. And to confuse everybody, <laughs> once you start writing enough about the three-way fight position, if you meet anyone involved in that project, you end up writing for them. Um, and so in some way, I'm, I'm connected to both at this moment. They're great activists. And where I stand out is I'm an academic in this, although I have some activist background. I think it's best to talk about the three-way fight by starting with a definition of fascism that fits with that. 
So each person kind of has their own. There isn't a consistent three-way fight line, although there's a couple pieces that are important. And the first one is this idea that fascism is a social movement involving a relatively autonomous and insurgent, potentially mass base. And so the first comment there was the idea that fascists are not just the stormtroops or the lackeys of some small faction of the most reactionary capitalists. So this goes against the well-known orthodox definition that really got popularized by the popular front position in the 1930s for the common turn. So that's represented in the work of Dimitrov. Mm-hmm. And then is repopularized later through the Black Panther Party in the United Front Against Fascism, because they explicitly adopt some of the positions out of the popular front work. And so the idea here is that the interests of fascism as a social movement don't necessarily align with capitalism or liberalism. So liberalism is obvious, but, you know, if you kind of see it in a Marxist way of looking at liberalism as a kind of political manifestation and rule of capital, that's the system they would arrive at. Then, of course, while it's obvious how the far right or fascists are against liberalism, it's a little more tricky to understand how they would differ with the capitalists in this regard. But the general idea is there's some confluence of interests, like For instance, my argument is that fascist or far-right groups aren't anti-capitalist in any meaningful way, although they have a way they would impose certain conditions on capitalism to their own benefit. I don't want to go too deep into class analysis of it, but it's a rejection of the idea that there's a top-down model where there's some fascist elites who then lead the shock troops, so to speak. On the other hand, what's really important is the division between liberalism and anti-fascism. And so one common line of adjacency, I call it, between the two is that there is a certain aspect or motif of egalitarianism. So I try to be serious about and take seriously liberal anti-fascism, although I've sort of been seen as a kind of like dismissive critic of it sometimes. And I'm not a person that just thinks, for instance, you go find some real old-fashioned orthodox Marxists and they say things like, if you get something from the system, it must somehow benefit the system. Like, if civil rights had some success, well, there must be some underlying... You know, the puppet masters in charge of capitalism, that must have some benefit from it. Right. I'm not one of those people, so I want to point that out. So I do think there's a meaningful sense that liberal anti-fascism believes in egalitarianism. It just happens to put it within the contours in which we understand liberal philosophy. So, you know, Rawls or anything else that fits into that where there's a kind of formalistic approach to it, whereas the egalitarianism in a militant sense is going to be more along the lines you discover in the underlying militant ideologies of anarchism or some forms of Marxism. Or in my book, I explore it quite a bit with Ranciere. I use him as a kind of test case. as He stakes out a very particular position about egalitarianism, and I use that to counter a book on nonviolence by someone who is a Ranciere scholar named Todd May. And so I kind of stake it out there. I count Judith Butler as a liberal anti-fascist who focuses on egalitarianism based on their most recent work, Force of Nonviolence. Mm-hmm. I do have an extensive essay about that that's going to come out in a book sometime eventually covering Butler's approach to it. Because I, I think there's lots of important aspects of Butler's work, but the Force of Nonviolence book is in its critique of violence very bad. So could you say a little bit more about how fascists are anti-parliamentarian in a way that anti-fascists are anti anti-parliamentarian? I mean like maybe that's maybe that's a little bit much, but how it is that the parliamentarian version of liberal democracy is essential to this three-way fight or these adjacencies that you're trying to demarcate between liberalism 
anti-fascism and fascism. Yeah, so I think I can summarize it in a way that's the quickest, is that both militant anti-fascism and far-right movements are insurgent in the sense that they reject the supposed legitimacy of state violence, so the monopoly on legitimate violence that the state claims. Right. And so horseshoe theory liberal types who see that the two extremes meet, that's just looking at the willingness to use violence as a tactic. And that's about as much in common as there is. There's no ideological bridge there, which is often the implicit conclusion of the horseshoe theory idea. Can I interrupt you here just for one second? Because I'm not sure that all of our listeners know what the horseshoe theory is. I mean, I think like most of us who are looking at the far right and looking at extreme political movements do know the horseshoe theory, but just for our listeners, could you summarize it? So horseshoe theory holds the quote-unquote extreme left and quote-unquote extreme right. Instead of being two opposite ends of a spectrum, meet at the tips of a horseshoe. Right. And so it's to point out that they're, if not similar, according to some people, identical, according to others. So the intro to my book has a couple comments about that. The first is, by only focusing on violence, if that's used, or struggle in the streets, if that's used by these two groups when they protest and counter-protest, it empties their opposition of all ideological content, meaning that whatever people believe that animates them to do this is off the board now and no one talks about that part. Mm -hmm. But then there's one other aspect that's really important. That in terms of their own internal ideological position, that far right and fascist groups venerate violence in itself as a good. You know, and they have stories that they explain to themselves, like if they use violence and it backfires on one of their own, then that person was weak. Oh, well, so-and-so was weak. You know, he was, he probably was caught in the violence and was hurt, killed, whatever. Well, that's just what happens to weak people in the middle of the whole thing. And it's very important to point out that militant anti-fascist violence is conceived of as community self-defense, which I refer to as emancipatory community self-defense. So there is some conceptual and practical limits to how it ought to be used or applied. Devin, could I get you to say a little bit more about the difference in the notion of equality or egalitarianism between anti-fascism and liberalism? Because as I understand it, the basic political theory behind liberal political theory, and of course there are varieties and so on, you pointed to Rawls, the basic theory is that there is a fundamental kind of equality that everyone shares and must be defended. It's usually expressed in terms of rights, and those rights usually attach to an individual who is understood to be who and what they are independent of any connection with any other individual. Now, from that point, all sorts of inequalities can emerge in any kind of state form or social form so that liberals are not necessarily or it's not because they are liberals that they might be opposed to economic inequality, that they might be opposed to inequality of access to various institutions and so on. And so they have a more fundamental notion of equality on that really basic level. How does that differ then from the egalitarianism of anti-fascism as you argue in the book? That's a good question. And it's going to reveal that in some way my views are evolving on this, or actually I would say moving away from Ranciere mm. in particular mm. and trying to conceive of it. Because in the book, you know, I can kind of just say 
equality here, its testing boundary is something like Ranciere, and then we can go from there and see what happens. Can I just say for Dave that Jacques Ranciere is a contemporary philosopher from France, and lately, he, well, maybe for his entire career, he's been thinking about politics in a wide variety of ways. But okay, thanks, Devin. Sorry. Ranciere's underlying idea is something about intellectual equality. And if you wanted to try to expand that and make sense of it in a way that is helpful, this is the difficult question is there's a way where I think there's something very good out of that definition that really Ranciere is trying to assert a certain kind of sense of agency where those who act know best about how they act. Yeah. If they're mm. struggling for their own emancipation. And I think there's something very good in that. And I won't get into the particulars of why I'm sort of drifting away from that. But at least in militant anti-fascist work, no one there is a Rancieris, uh, if you could say that. There's no Jean-Paul Sartrean types. There's no Simone de Beauvoirists, and so on and so forth. So it's an interesting thing that I would say, I, you know, ideologically, most of them are either Marxist or anarchist. But the underlying idea, of course, is that this egalitarianism is going to encompass something about that aspect of agency that's important, that drives it. And then something about more egalitarian conditions of enabling that kind of subjective mm. action. Mm. What it is, is it's very different than what Rick quickly described as the summary of the idea that there's a sort of basic equality between people. And that as long as that's observed, all kinds of fundamental inequalities that arise on certain conditions are justifiable as long as that basic minimum is met. So I have a question. I'm not going to lie. I am 100% setting you up for a question that I have later. <laughs> but for our listeners, so we've been talking about the three-way fight, which is between liberalism, fascism, and anti-fascism. You know, like it's a triangle and you've drawn these kind of adjacencies between each point of the triangle and also demarcations between each point of the triangles. All all that's very important. People should read Devin's book to get all the details of that. But one of the things that you demarcate and also draw as an adjacency is between anti-fascists and the far right. And you say that they're both insurrectionary, but that only anti-fascists are revolutionary. And if you could just draw out that distinction for our listeners. Yeah, so the shorthand is revolutionary is anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. Because there was some, and there remains some debate, even amongst authors that contribute to three-way fight. The initial impetus for that position came from a paper written by Don Hammerquist, who had a long history of revolutionary organizing in the United States. Ironically, he's been around long enough that he was in the Communist Party USA in the 60s. But that's not what's relevant to this position is that it was the Sojourner Truth Organization in Chicago that in the late 70s, early 80s undertook a critique of the orthodox line on fascism in Marxism and reformulated it. And they noticed there was the realignment of the relationship between the Klan and neo-Nazis because before the late 70s and early 80s, those two groups wouldn't talk to each other. Right. They wouldn't organize together. And then there was some kind of mutation that happened around then where then they started working together. And their concept there that is realized in Don's paper that's published in Confronting Fascism is that what we see is the previous groups that we might have thought of as being kind of, you know, the slogan, cops and clan go hand in hand, mm -hmm. where there's this kind of idea they're working together, which certainly would have been realized in the South in the 1960s and 1970s without denying it. And it's even obviously, as we all know, closer than that. It's not just like 
here's the Klan on one side and the police on the other. It's that many people that are police were also in white supremacist organizations. Some of that is still quite true. So it's not bounded off into the past. But what they noticed is that there's a shift in the far right's view of itself to start seeing itself as system oppositional, right. which it tries to work out in a bunch of different ways. And I would say the simplest and most straightforward one to understand that has the most relevance right now is to say that a lot of these groups, they're system oppositional to something related to the present system in the United States, for example. And the question is, what are they opposed to or how do they look at it? So some people said, well, maybe they're anti-capitalist. I think there's a good reason to criticize that. I don't think they are. But I think you can see the system oppositional character of it if you look at something like the Patriot Movement. They worked it out as a kind of local versus federal opposition. Mm -hmm. And many far-right groups do this. They position themselves as the true inheritors of the American Constitution or the people of the we, the people, and so on and so forth. But then they view that as the local county-level organizations that carry the torch of that and that these larger organizations have been corrupted or captured or depending on the level of conspiracy theories involved, because that's where the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories come in. But some degree of institutional capture, that's one way they square it. In some way, they sound system loyal because they all claim the con- many of them claim the Constitution, but they have a system oppositional character in the way that they're discussing the big picture of the federal arrangement. And I think that helps us understand what might be meant by system oppositional. So I think this is a basic part of the three-way fight position, is the far right and fascism has to be system oppositional to some degree by definition, because it poses a threat to the present system as it is. And it may be opportunistically able to jump into the system when there's a crisis, for example. We may be looking at something like that over the long run. Like in 2016, the alt-right kind of thought, maybe it's time for them to walk through the door and see what they can do in largely bureaucratic work, really. But in general, their position is system oppositional. And the one thing from some of those earlier works that people were discussing was that the three-way fight came out of revolutionary or militant groups. And they were saying, one thing you don't want to be outflanked on is this system oppositional character. So you can work with liberal anti-fascists in an organizational level, but you can't just throw your weight behind, we're the true patriots or we're the true Americans. And you, mm-hmm. you see a lot of this in that World War II memification of anti-fascism. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Devin, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned the World War II memification. And I feel like this is, in some sense, along the three-way demarcation, but also gets into something else that I think is important about your book and your work is that You know, there is this tendency, I think, for some people to say that this is the U.S., we've always been against fascism, we fought a whole war about that, and to kind of locate their anti-fascism within a continuity of World War II, of Captain America punching Nazis, etc. And I've often felt like that response, what's happening now, is going to be thoroughly inadequate. 
because what's happening now is a fascism of a different flavor. And as you said, you can't just be aligned with patriotism and the system. And I guess one of the things I want to talk about is why the argument you're making is that confronting fascism is also going to be about confronting things like settler colonialism, white supremacy, and really coming to a very different understanding of where we are and how we got here historically than the, you know, we've always been fighting fascists. That's why we were in World War II sort of narrative. So could you talk about like why white supremacy comes up, why settler colonialism, why these are very much integral to thinking about fighting fascism today? So this goes back to a discussion about the subtitle of the book, which is Punching Nazis and Fighting White Supremacy. <laughs> and with the editor at the time, we had some back and forth about it. I'm terrible at titles, but I really wanted that. And the reason is it describes chapters four and five as two separate items that come up. Yeah. So chapter four is about the actual punching of Nazis and the descriptions of violence and the issues related to that. And then five has this discussion of settler colonialism in it. And that to me has always been the best part of the book in its own way, even though a lot of confusion has arisen on the basis of that one, I think. But the important part out of it was to point out that one of the aspects of the definition I started reading, so I talked about how fascism is a social movement that potentially has a mass base that's system oppositional, and then that definition continues. And if anyone's interested, these are summarized in a piece I've written called Seven Theses on the Three-Way Fight. It's easy to find. Fascism is driven by an authoritarian vision of collective rebirth that challenges bourgeois institutional and cultural power while re-entrenching economic and social hierarchies. So settler colonialism comes in for the latter half of this definition, because one part of the traditional definition of fascism, when it tried to explain why the masses would care about it, is always to treat people like they're duped into some superficial interests rather than following their deeper class interests. And you can still find lots of people echoing this kind of stuff. And part of the explanation that comes out of the three-way fight position is to try to say, what deeper interests do people think they have in this? And settler colonialism comes to answer part of that in the North American context, and obviously in other settler colonial societies, but I try to keep it narrow. Part of their vision of rebirth of society is very commonly a kind of revival of the settler colonial project where it was a flourishing white society that basically kept down minorities and had a clear gendered division of labor and various other things. Ableism and frontierism is a manifestation of that, of the kind of frontier person and their self-sufficiency. And you can start going quite a bit into this heterosexism, so on and so forth. But what it is, is it's a revival of the good old days, how they see it. And it's very important to note, you still find lots of people that aren't far right that sort of call back to this same past without really examining it. And it shows you that there's some problems and continuities in the way that settler colonial ideology works. I went to a conference where there was a lot of sort of liberal anti-fascists around and, and some of them were economists and they wanted to just naively revive the late 50s, early 60s social peace in their minds of the welfare state without really examining some of the underlying conditions that enabled that to happen and who that really benefited economically. Because at the same time, you can talk about racist unions and James Boggs is a contemporary critic and captures this stuff in his American Revolution book in 1962. So you, you know, you can say it's very clear. We can see what's going on. 
and I think he talks about this too, if I remember right, a very strong connection to this industrial production and military mm -hmm. and militarism. And so there's kind of two ways where this comes up is they're inflected differently is there's one where everyone's quality of life was better as American imperialism flourished in the 1960s. But let's not get too deep into that latter part. And then the more blatant one, which is vision of the rebirth through the far right, which very much often celebrates the economic and social hierarchies that are there as founded on tradition or nature. And so that's why settler colonialism plays an important part in this, because I think I had noticed in a lot of discussions of anti-fascism that this aspect was not present in the discussion. And so there was a lot of the idea that if we can get Trump out, then we revert back to how things were and things are fine. And I said, there's a much bigger social question involved here, an organizational question for struggle, aside from it being an intrigue of electoral politics. I do want to get back to the question of violence, but right now I want to ask you a different question. And this is a genuine question. This is not a trap. I'm a little bit worried that current anti-fascist movements may not be able to succeed if they're not nationalist. And like, let me fill that in. So we know that in Italy, in Germany, the insurrectionary impulse of the fascist movement was not to destroy society, to be actually revolutionary, but to create a communism effectively, a socialism effectively for Italy, for Germany. And I kind of believe that there's a strong sentiment in the anti-fascist movement in the United States to create a socialism for the United States, which, you know, like maybe we don't want to call a nationalist socialism, but is kind of, right? So I guess my question to you is, how does anti-fascism work given the seeming impossibility of a communist international? It's a little question. Like, won't it always have to be nationalist? Is there a particular group you're thinking of? or Actually, there's not to... a particular group I'm thinking of. I'm really just thinking, you know, in my experience, like walking in the streets with people who are anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-colonial settlerist, who are looking to change the fundamental structure of American society in a non-legislative way. Like my basic understanding is that what we're trying to do is change American society. It is a kind of nationalist, socialist enterprise. You know, I mean, I don't know any other way to say it other than what I just said. Given the seeming impossibility of a communist international, aren't all anti-fascist movements going to have to be nationalist? No. I <laughs> okay, so. I would love to hear and how I think, not. Yeah, so the yeah. sort of historical roots to this are important because the people I would associate with a three-way fight, which may sound dated to many people, came out of the tradition of the national self-determination vanguard. Yeah. So often yeah. they were white activists, but there was the concept in the 1960s, for instance, of something like the Black Panthers were a vanguardist party or there were others. And I think it's philosophically and conceptually important, the authors involved in that. The reason why they reject nationalism is from their own biographical experiences, they come out of that era of, well, throwing your hat in for some kind of fundamental change while leaving American society as a political unit together is not revolutionary following the national liberation concepts. And the Canadian one, I can say this very straightforwardly, fully advocates for national self-determination for indigenous peoples. 
you know, let's save Canada, the Canadian settler colonial project, it's the colonizers project. Mm -hmm. And so the anti-fascist position ought to be the support for national self-determination. How do you realize that? Well, that's in its own way a different picture, but ideologically and for teaching, surprise, I end up teaching when I end up with organizations or affinity groups that work on this is working on that with people who come in and go, I don't like the far right people that are around. And of course, now I'm getting stuck with some extra education and it's to talk settler colonialism through with people and say, you know, the big picture is if all you want to do is salvage the Canadian settler colonial project, you're going to end up dissatisfied with our movement because in fact, that's not the ultimate goal. The far right's a threat. The Canadian state is a threat. And I think that's applicable in the US. They're just different threats. And in fact, the irony of all this is that the bigger danger and more oppression is really usually the state. And far-right groups, mm -hmm. in their own way, can't do nearly as much damage as the ordinary functioning of capitalism, but they do represent an independent threat that needs to be fought so that things don't get worse down the road. I just wanted to also say no and add to Devin's point. But whereas I think he gave a great job of talking the history of that, there are also some very contemporary reasons why in the sense that, I mean, right now, fascism utilizes the nation and the border has become the sort of line of a new racist demarcation, right? That people are not willing, mm -hmm. you know, this is what Ballybar calls neo-racism. People aren't willing to talk so much about races in sort of biological sense, but they are willing to talk a lot about the borders and those who are foreign and so on. So given the role of the border in fascism, it seems to be this one has to necessarily be anti-nationalist to be anti-fascist. And then the other weird thing about this, and I agree, Lee, I agree that there isn't like an international waiting in the wings to sort of bring up these issues. Or to even put in a darker spin on it, to the extent there is an international, it's the international organization of far-right groups. I mean, the paradox of the present is that nationalist right groups are more internationally organized than opposition in some ways. Right. And the role that they play, you know, the constant sort of trips to Hungary to fuel their ideological and political commitments and so on. I mean, I understand your point that a lot of organizing happens with the nation as a presumed horizon. Mm -hmm. But what I like about Devin's work is that he's really trying to push the sense that to be anti-fascist, you're going to have to give up some assumed liberal coordinates about the nation and about our history. A real anti-fascism is going to have to confront the nation in the same way it's going to have to confront settler colonialism and the white supremacy built into a lot of nostalgia for the good old days of the 60s. I want to put this question maybe in a larger frame, but first I want to say it's Can pretty it get much larger. A... <laughs> yes, than the international. I'll, I'll show you how. I'm going cosmic. The interstellar. He's going to put this in an interstellar exactly. plane. Intergalactic. But first, let me just remind everyone that it is pretty much established Hotel Bar Sessions policy that the nation state was a bad idea and it should be eliminated as soon as possible. Um, so that's territory that's been well covered. That's what you guys signed on to by the. <laughs> play today. Just FYI. Um, but when Lee was asking that question, you gave your response. And then also in Jason's response, I was reminded, I have a friend and he used to be my colleague, Bill Martin, who published a book that was basically some conversations he had over a period of time with Bob Avakian, who I don't know the current state of the Revolutionary Communist Party, but he used to be the Secretary General or, or something. Bill and I talked an awful lot about that book and what he was after. And Bill made a distinction that has really 
it's become really important to me. He said that he thinks there must be a difference between a strategy for the revolution and philosophy. That is, that there's nothing really that philosophy can and perhaps maybe even should offer in terms of what we should do practically to get from here to there and what steps have to be taken and how best to do that. I'm interested that your book is titled The Philosophy of Anti-Fascism. And so I'm wondering, do you see a difference between a philosophy of anti-fascism, which doesn't have to take in these practical considerations, and a strategy of making the world or at least a part of the world anti-fascist? Oh, Bill, (laughs) who actually supported me through part of my early career as a mentor and then went in his own way, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. So, Bill, if you for some reason happened upon this, you've really made a mistake uh, with where you've gone. And so you need to go into, as the old timers used to say, a rectification (laughs) process for your beliefs. And Avakianism, oh, that's its own. <laughs> yeah, my point wasn't about Avakianism. Yeah. My point was but about this. <laughs> <laughs> he totally did. I brought up the man's name, not anything about his position. <laughs> but we all went there. Come on, you know. It's important to note one thing that does relate to this is the RCP's position. So the RCP USA, which was led by Avakian and that Bill was involved in very much was opportunistically chauvinist Mm. throughout its history, including when Bill would have been involved. And so it's worth pointing out that when people wonder about that temptation about, oh, maybe we pitch our side on, you know, the racism is dividing the working class. And so we're going to do something that's opportunistic related to that. Maybe we just take that as an object lesson and then put that away for now. Because that's what I was thinking about for a second when you brought it up, is I was like, the RCP USA is a pretty good lesson for how not to be a revolutionary party for the amount of chauvinism it, Mm. it moved on in the late 70s and early 80s, especially. But your question is about strategy and philosophy. I'll move on to that. I think I agree in the general idea that you don't need to be hashing out all the actual strategic aspects of practical action. But this book has a very specific idea in its project, which was to say... If philosophers get in there and do projects of justification or legitimation for various practices, why hasn't someone done one that said, what you're seeing as militant anti-fascism is ethically fine? Right. Because we have lots of people that have made their careers in philosophy justifying or legitimating state power and violence and their lives go on and they get promoted (laughs) up and they're famous people and they do quite well. And then I just said, well, why can't someone just do something by looking at some of the very basic rudimentary arguments about violence, counterviolence, emancipatory community self-defense, and at least put a justification in there for it and show that it's not that complicated in a way. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So, Devin, I want to ask you, 
Can I punch Nazis? <laughs> Should I punch Nazis? Is it ethically okay to punch Nazis? Yes. Yes, yes, all right. It was real pleasure to have you on this podcast. And I'm sorry that our listeners had to wait so long for that answer. The short answer is yes, but there's always strategic and tactical questions that go with it, which kind of ties into what we were talking about. Largely what we're looking at is an ethical justification, but then again, people always need to be aware that there are tactical and strategic reasons to override that. But those are decisions made by the groups that are organizing. Right. One of the issues I always find frustrating in these discussions about violence and the appropriate use of violence and the ethical use of violence is it never really raises, in a way I think your book does raise, we need to look at who's setting the limits of what counts as violence. Because why is it called violence all of a sudden when a group of people smash a window in downtown Chicago, but the conditions that the state, the city, and history have set that put them in the positions in which their anger can't be directed through those institutional channels, that's not called violence. So the smashing of the window is called violence. The system that wreaks violence in the everyday lives of people is never labeled violence. Yeah, and if I could just tag on to what Rick said I also love your book, and I guess I realize it's already written now, but like, I think that one of the things that you could have maybe capitalized on more is the difference between violence against property and violence against persons, and to tie that to your adjacency that you identified between the different kinds of insurgencies that anti-fascist and far-right movements are involved in, right? Like that anti-fascist movements are anti-capital and far-right movements are anti-bourgeois. So of course, fascist movements are going to be offended by violence against property in a way that anti-fascist movements are not. That's an interesting observation because, you know, the Oath Keepers and different groups come out when they feel like they're going to be, you know, the quasi-riot police so, well, maybe I can say it came out in June of 2020, so that means it was written long before the anti-police uprising of 2020, where we tried to, you know, hash some of that out. Yeah. You know, I've tried to work on a little bit of that kind of discussion in other venues related to that. So the general point I think that Rick's making that is important here is that there is a very strong control over what's considered violence because state violence, which is extremely violent and directly part of the project of oppression that we all live under here, walls itself off under this image of being, you know, to pardon the Hegelianism, but objective right. This is just the implementation of the law. That's it. Right. It's not anything beyond that. And that things to challenge that become violent. And that's selective too. Far right mm -hmm. stuff is obviously celebrated by many politicians and right-wing thinkers that are mainstream at this point. Mm -hmm. I won't name any names because mm -hmm. I'm tired of them getting more attention, but you know who I'm talking about in some of these instances. <laughs> yeah. The couple in Missouri. They're mm -hmm. not as awful mm -hmm. as some of the other people I know that literally walked on murder. Those two went out there with guns and then ended up giving, what, a speech to what, the RNC, if I remember right, or something like mm -hmm. this. And, you know, so there's a very selective aspect to that. And, yeah, and there's lots of critique built into leftist movements trying to demystify how that arises. Well, of course, the state views challenges to itself as violent, even when they're nonviolent. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the staked out definition. One of the things you said earlier that really struck me is you said that in the right, there's a celebration of violence. 
violence is considered to be not just something that they have to engage in to push their goals, but part of the worldview that they're trying to embody in the sort of sense that like when people lose, people are considered to be weak or whatever. And I guess I'm wondering about two distinctions. One is the distinction between an ethical defense of violence that would not be a celebration of violence. But also, I think that in your book, you're not talking so much about black block actions of like smashing windows. You're talking about violence as community defense. You're talking about violence that really is person to person that you're defending. So I want to just think about like the, the distinction you make between, on the one hand, not a celebration of violence, but on the other hand, not saying that this isn't violent because we're just hurting inanimate objects. Punching a Nazi is harming another, you know, is putting your fist in someone else's face. I'm wondering about the ethics of violence that you're putting forward as non-celebratory, but also not an attempt to say this isn't really violence because we're just breaking some windows. Yeah, so I'll just go into the part about self-defense so that the listeners are on the same page we're on, is what I want to say. <laughs> so one thing I developed a little more in some work that's going to be forthcoming is the discussion of self-defense so that it is captured conceptually a little more clearly. And so two things, I think a lot of people, when they talk about self-defense, even in this context, they rely on what I call the common sense notion of self-defense. Mm -hmm. And if we rely on that, then what happens here with punching Nazis doesn't make a lot of sense because the common sense notion means self-defense is an exceptional moment within a political continuum that runs from an individual right to state violence. Mm -hmm. In other words... Right. It holds that in the absence of law enforcement, an individual has the natural or self-evident right to protect their person, property, and or family. And so one of the important aspects to this is, of course, that continuum piece. You know, there's a continuum between my action and an actual objective right, so the police or whatever. Now, one of the things I really, from the very origin of this book, thought was absolutely important was to really think seriously about breaking that continuum and thinking about it. Because when you organize with communities that are embattled with the police, that just giving these kinds of common sense notions don't help them at all. And they'll tell you if you say, well, there's this, this and this, and they'll go, but we have, you know, the blatant opposition of the police. So I've tried to incorporate that into the concept of emancipatory community self-defense. So I've defined it like this. Emancipatory community self-defense fosters autonomy and solidarity for socially vulnerable groups. It is organized against the antagonism of police oppression, so there's no presumed continuum between community action and police power. And this communal form of self-defense is often not protected by the quote-unquote right of self-defense extended by the state. And so it was really trying to think, you know, if you're someone working with a marginalized community and you're not from it, which is the presumed audience of many philosophical works, given the demographics of academic philosophy, is it's a reminder to people that when you go in and you're working with these communities, go in and be aware that one assumption that's very difficult to stop holding is the idea that somewhere along the line, state violence will come in and rescue you from fascism. And for them, they'll say, well, why would it do that? If state violence is directed against us, when is it going to come in and rescue our community? Right. As a good point of reference for people, that came out of obviously experience, but the kind of easy way you can get access to a historical work that's very influential is Robert F. Williams's Negroes with Guns from 1962, I think. And it's very good for walking through some of these aspects and actually looking at self-defense and white supremacy and the attendant problems there. And so that's one of the very important aspects because... Punching Nazis or using counterviolence is framed within the membership of anti-fascist groups themselves. 
as community self-defense. And the second thing I'll say about self-defense, about community, is one thing that arose to me that's very important. And again, you can find it right back in Williams's book if you're reading it, looking for these things. These hints are here. Is that you have to abandon a couple of other core conceptions people have about trying to accept community self-defense, but like, again, draw some borders around it for their own comfort. Even in the 60s, you'll see there's a challenge to many of our preconceptions in that community self-defense is not geographically bounded. So we very commonly will say, oh, well, you know, there were black neighborhoods that were segregated out from white neighborhoods and people had the right to do community self-defense there, but we're more awkward when it gets out of that. The Williams is organizing and much of the armed self-defense wing of the civil rights movement did not obey that. Yeah. Maybe you didn't see the guns out there, but you know, you read Charles Cobb Jr.'s book or you read Akinyele Umoja and they talk about it. The police and the Klan, they knew that the people standing there around the civil rights movement that were the deacons of defense, for example, they knew they were armed, even though they weren't holding right. it. It was well aware yeah. because they were doing their own risk assessments, so to speak, of knowing that these people were armed surrounding nonviolent protest as well. So that's heavily documented. So I think it's very important to note that this kind of concept doesn't have geographical boundaries. The other thing that's very important is it's not related to defense based on what I would call, I think even in the book, sociologically homogenous groups, mm -hmm. where you would draw a line and say black community, white community, or something like this. Much of this armed self-defense was defending white activists in the South. I bring this up because there's some weird shade in Butler's book that kind of says, like, if you just defend your own, Butler's not making a distinction between oppressor and oppressed. And we're talking about Judith yeah, Butler. Judith Butler again. And so they presented as if, if you fight for your own, quote unquote, that that's bad. And I said, if you observe oppressor oppressed, isn't there a difference conceptually? And then the further argument is to say, even then I would challenge it on the idea that we're talking about for oppressed people's sociologically homogenous groups. And so it's really important to highlight those aspects. And why is that? Well, a lot of community self-defense is about access to streets and public spaces. And so that's why you see it manifests as it does in militant anti-fascist work. I can think of two main arguments against the use of violence for people who otherwise would be maybe supportive of the gist of an anti-fascist movement. And one is that it's strategically self-defeating. So it turns the general public away from supporting the movement. And the other, and this is one that you raise in your book, and I was hoping you could just say a little bit more, is that this work is done in bad faith. Yeah. So first, I'll look at the general public issue. One thing I argue in the book is that militant work is not based on optics. Its decisions are always guided by the idea of what's going to be the thing that subverts far-right movements organizing. And you may want to make a strategic or tactical decision about optics, but it shouldn't be the driver. There's a very good book by Stanislav Vysotsky called American Antifa that goes into some of this from a sociological and criminological perspective. And I think what's really helpful about that is that he talks a little bit about social movement theory itself reveals an assumption we very often carry. It thinks of social movements as eventually trying to influence government or institutional actors. And so it gets really confused when it sees something that doesn't do that. And so militant anti-fascism, another way to say it is that's not its ultimate goal. The ultimate question is what's the thing that stops far-right movements at this particular moment or geography or step, you know, how they're developing. And we've seen plenty of cases where at least the groups that organize this stuff really have said optics be damned mm. for that. You know, one of the things in my own book I really tried to get at, I'm not going to say no to something based on optics alone or, or what the general public thinks. 
if your general public is being guided by the many people screaming in the New York Times and editorials about incivility, you're going to lose no matter what in terms yeah. of optics. So if you're letting that guide you, then that's going to be self-defeating. Now, the second one is a much bigger issue. The meaning of bad faith gets used differently in existentialism. So existentialism has a concept of bad faith, which is some degree of self-deception. You self-deceive yourself about your actions. Now, what that means over time actually, I think, changes and they're not consistent. So Sartre or Beauvoir are not consistent about how they treat it over time or whether they even agree. So we'd have to get a little more particular about that self-deception. But there was a time where there was something along the lines of the self-deception involves treating someone as an object. And so if you use violence on them, you're dehumanizing them. You're treating them as an object rather than a human or something like this. And Sartre worked with this for a little bit. You can see a little bit of it in Beauvoir, but I don't think she ever categorized that as bad faith. But the main thing I argue is that I think Sartre abandoned that idea and actually went for a much more narrow view of what bad faith was, that it was a problem of epistemology or knowledge, which I think is very productive for an understanding of the far right, which is something like a kind of self-deception that involves when you get back evidence that opposes your position, you change the standards of evidence. And so if you hold a biological theory of race and you're presented with science that shows that there is no biological theory of race that's tenable, and again, I'm not endorsing this as a way of dispelling people's racist attitudes because I don't think it's the best way to do it. But I mean, if someone tried that, what we're looking at in this case is then the far right person doesn't say, oh, yes, you've now countered my views by showing me that the scientific evidence doesn't bear that out but rather says there must be something wrong with evidence itself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's your evidence and that my boundaries for evidence are different. And I think that's a very important aspect of bad faith to identify. Well, you've convinced me I'm going to find the next Nazi and just whack him <laughs> <laughs> just next time I see one. Yeah, and speaking of whacking Nazis, uh, listeners, please do support this podcast. You can find us on patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Devin, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we had you on today. Could I make a pitch for something? Sure. So I've been a contributor to the three-way fight blog for the last couple years, and they have created a selection or anthology of the works that have been influential for our group, their group, whatever. I'm kind of working with it. Um, I never know where I am with it. So <laughs> anyway, the editors put together an anthology, and that should be coming out sometime in, within the next year about the three-way fight in particular. And it has you know something like almost two dozen pieces, I think. And I think it's going to be a very helpful book for understanding that perspective because it, it's a pretty large group of authors of not just the actual people who write for it, for instance, myself or Matthew Lyons, but also plenty of essays that have been influential on people that write on it and so that may have not ever found a home in a volume to put them in context or have them curated. So sometimes these are often pamphlets or ephemera that get lost over time or disappear and become very difficult to track. And so I think they've done a good service of putting all this together and curating quite a few essays for people to look at. And, and that's going to be coming out within the next year. And at least people can mark that down if they want to get a broad spectrum of people's perspectives on the three-way fight position. Thank you so much for that, Devin. Yeah. So if we're going to go punch Nazis, there are none here in the bar. So I'll call us a cab. I don't know how you know that there are none here in the bar, but I will also <laughs> join your ride. A good bartender will toss them, right? The minute they walk through the door. <laughs> 
sure. And we have nothing if not a good bartender. I'll catch you guys next time. So glad to be sitting here at the bar with you. Later. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.